0: This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. I'm going to cast kind of a wide net tonight. Uh, As Jeff told you, I work at San Francisco General Hospital. I work primarily in the psychiatric emergency, but I've also had experience working in consultation liaison psychiatry at California Pacific. I've worked in a jail setting. I worked in Africa. I've worked with uh, crystal meth addicts for the last eight years. I just stopped doing that at the Stonewall Project. Um, I've done inpatient psychiatry. I did a little bit of private practice, but I got kind of antsy sitting in the chair for hour after hour. So I like jobs where I'm on my feet and interacting with other staff members as well. Um, So tonight I'm going to cast a wide net. Um, Since we have a good amount of time, I want to actually talk a little bit about some things that might seem peripheral to the subject, but actually have a lot to do with it. One of them, we're going to take a brief look at the history of psychiatry, and and actually if you look at the history of psychiatry in the 19th century, the conditions that people were often committed to an asylum for were really medical conditions that presented with behavioral problems. We're also going to take a little bit of time looking at some basic neuroanatomy and neurophysiology Um, of both the brain and the autonomic nervous system in particular. And I can tell you, you're going to get a view from a clinician's perspective. So I do not um, do research. Um, I see patients and I teach residents and students in a clinical setting. And so really, I'm a clinical professor of psychiatry. I'm more of a clinician than, than a researcher. So you're going to get a clinician's view of neuroanatomy and neurophysiology. I was just thinking, I haven't formally studied neuroanatomy in I believe 30 years at this point. So um, it's been a while. Um, In addition, I want to talk about um, the heart of the talk is really looking at delirium and altered mental status and sort of the diagnostic approach to that and how a clinician goes about sort of solving the puzzle of what might be causing an altered mental status situation. Um, And I also just want to talk a little bit about the brain-body and the mind-body relationship. Um, So we have a a lot of ground to cover here. Um, but I'm really I'm looking forward to going, going through it. So let's, let's look at the history a little bit. Um, and I brought a textbook uh, that's 100 years old. Um, this is a book by Emil Krepelin. And actually the story behind this book is that my grandfather was a GP in west central Minnesota, from 1905 to his death in 1959, and my dad gave me some of his old textbooks. And there's, this is a textbook of psychiatry published in 1913 by Emil Kreppelin. So, Emil Kreppelin is the most influential psychiatrist you've perhaps never heard of. You may have heard of him. But Kreppelin was a 19th century German psychiatrist, and he actually was one of the first psychiatrists to really be systematic in how he observed patients, in taking notes, and using case studies. And in fact, Kreplin is the psychiatrist who probably influenced the psychiatrists in America in the 60s and 70s who crafted DSM-3. And if you know about DSM-3, written in 1980 by Robert Spitzer and influenced by Washington University psychiatrists, you'll know that it's a great departure from psychiatric diagnosis in the first half of the 20th century, as you may no, the first half of the 20th century was the era of Sigmund Freud and psychoanalysis. DSM-1, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, is our guidebook. I will never call it a Bible of psychiatry. As some of the journalists use lazy shorthand and call DSM the Bible of psychiatry. It is not a Bible. Uh, it is not a sacred text. Um, but basically DSM-1 was written in 1952, and if you look at DSM-1 and DSM-2, which was written in 1967, they very much have the language of psychoanalysis. Um, and there is mention, of course, of biological causes of psychiatric illness, but, um, so they don't ignore it completely. But in 1980, with dsm 3 there was a huge shift. And I think essentially the psychiatrists in the 60s and the 70s wanted to get away from psychoanalysis and, in fact, rejected psychoanalysis and basically decided to craft a diagnostic system based upon categorizing symptoms. And there's a lot of problems in categorizing symptoms, but basically that's, that's what happened. So Kreplin was sort of a forerunner of the biological psychiatrist. But the reason I brought this book, um, and this, these are my reading glasses, so you have to bear with me, but the reason I brought this book is that I want to read to you the chapter titles of, of every chapter in the book, and they're not in particularly good order, but about half of the diagnoses are clearly medical conditions that cause behavioral problems, and the other half are kind of weird. Some of them are quite odd, and I, I, really, I don't know all the history behind it, but I think it's actually relatively... Um, illustrative. So uh chapter one is melancholia, which is the classic form of major depression. Melancholia has been described for sent for, for millennia actually. It's one of the few mental disorders or disturbances that have been described for millennia. Um the second is depressed stages of maniacal depressive insanity, circular stupor. It's really a mouthful. It's a it would be a subtype of uh, Bipolar would be called bipolar depression today The third chapter is dementia precox And you may have heard this term reading the history of psychiatry That's essentially what schizophrenia was um, called in that era The fourth is catatonic stupor And catatonia is a collection of symptoms That can happen in all sorts of medical and psychiatric conditions Chapter five is states of depression in general paralysis And general paralysis of the insane was the diagnosis applied to people with neurosyphilis. So late-stage syphilis um, was called general paralysis of the insane, and I'll talk a bit more about that in a second. And that's a perfect example of a medical condition that can cause behavioral problems. And, in fact, syphilis was called the disease of the century, the 19th century, and also called the great mimicker, historically, the great mimicker of psychiatric syndromes. Chapter 6 is epileptic insanity. Chapter 7 is maniacal excitement, which is probably mania. Chapter 8 is mixed conditions of maniacal depressive insanity, which is probably bipolar, equivalent to bipolar mixed. Uh, Chapter 9 is catatonic excitement. Chapter 10 is megalomania in general paralysis. And basically... That's a mouthful, but there is a subtype of people who develop syphilis who develop overt mania, manic symptoms. Uh, Chapter 11, alcoholic mental disturbance. So, of course, alcoholism, another sort of exogenous or medical cause of change in behavior, was observed 100 years ago. Insanity in acute diseases, and this is really what we would and the next is varieties of delirium so basically already 100 years ago you'd describe changes in behavior in someone who is medically ill which we'll talk a lot more about purperal insanity which purperal refers to peripartum uh, time chapter 15 is paranoia or progressive systematized insanity i'm just going to leave that one alone i don't know what that means um Chapter 16 is Paranoidal Forms of Dementia Precox. This would would be something along the lines of paranoid schizophrenia. Uh, Chapter 17, Different Forms of Delusions. I don't don't know what that means. Uh, The next chapter is Chronic Alcoholism. So even then, uh, there was chronic alcoholism. Um, The next chapter is Morphinism and Cocainism. So addiction described Uh, the next is final stages of general paralysis of the insane. So this would be terminal neurosyphilis. Uh, the next, final stages of dementia, precox. The next is dementia from coarse brain lesions. And that's actually important because we will talk more about how actually structural lesion, lesions in the central nervous system can cause all sorts of behavioral disturbances. We'll talk a lot more about that. Senile dementia, which is equivalent of Alzheimer's. Yep. Some of these are, like, just really out there. Epileptic feeble-mindedness, I'm not going to touch that. Um, Hysterical insanity, I don't really want to touch that one either. Um, Insanity after injuries to the head, so again, some post-concussive observation of behavioral changes in post-concussive states. And some of these are really precious. I mean, in this one, I have no idea what this means, but irrepressible ideas and irresistible fears, Um, which I think is just lyrical and I I would probably think it's some form of obsessive compulsive irrepressible ideas and irresistible fears Uh, the next chapter is congenital states of disease. So congenital conditions can also cause behavioral problems Uh, Morbid personalities is the next chapter and how many morbid personalities do you guys know? I've met a few over the years um Morbid criminals and vagabonds, and these do show up on the doorstep of the emergency room from time to time. Um, Imbecility and idiocy, and these are very old-fashioned terms for developmental disorders such as mental retardation. And the last is cretinism, which is a form of cognitive disorder related to hypothyroidism. And in the same chapter, he talks about... um, thyroid disease in general, and other endocrine illnesses, which we will spend a lot more time talking about. So um, I hope that wasn't too uh, hard to listen to, but I wanted to give you a sense of that, that really, you know, for hundreds of, a hundred years at least, we've already been describing medical conditions that cause behavioral disturbances. Um, So I want to read briefly also uh, a, piece from a book by Edward Shorter and if you haven't heard of Edward Shorter he's a medical historian at Toronto I'm not sure if he's still alive but he wrote the best book about the history of psychiatry uh, published in 1997 and basically I'm going to read to you from his book um, he's describing basically that much of the rise of um, asylum admissions in the 19th century were due to syphilis In that um, he basically sort of gives a scenario of how syphilis finds its way into the general population. The syphilitic infiltration of the central nervous system is of capital importance in the history of psychiatry because it often announces itself clinically in the form of psychiatric symptoms. The end stages of neurosyphilis would be treated in public asylums and private clinics. It is the enormous rise in frequency of this disorder that explains part of the flood of patients into institutions. Once called the disease of the century, neurosyphilis has been virtually forgotten today and is routinely ignored by historians of psychiatry. So this is the scenario he describes. Typically, a young student or businessman would have sex with a prostitute in an era when, quote, nice girls were not available before marriage. He would experience the sore on his penis or perhaps the swollen lymph nodes of the groin that constitute evidence of primary syphilis. Then the signs of infection would go away, and the episode might pass from his mind. But the spirochetes, and the spirochetes are the specific microorganisms that cause syphilis, they would not leave the young man's bloodstream, because at that time there were no antibiotics, right? 19th century, so once antibiotics came around and syphilis was diagnosed... Penicillin is still a very robust treatment for um, syphilis, so no antibiotics, so the infection just sort of works its way out of a person's system, but the spiral spirochetes do persist. So for many years, the young professionals and businessmen who were most at risk of the disease would walk about symptom-free. And at this point, one of two things might happen. Either the body's immune system would overcome the disease so that it did in fact go away, or a decade now down the road, the infected individuals might start to become symptomatic in the form, perhaps, of being unable to pronounce some kinds of phrases. So oftentimes it came about as a cognitive disorder or a language disorder that one might see in dementia. But sometimes the early meningitis caused by the spiral spirochetes might take the form of more frankly psychiatric symptoms, such as the grandiosity characteristic of mania. So you actually, this was this well described back in the 19th century and beyond, that neurosyphilis, one of its presentations would be um, overt mania. So you'd you know be able to separate from a manic depressive illness. It would be something different. So the sudden appearance of psychiatric symptoms of any kind in middle-aged businessmen and professionals made physicians of the day think immediately of neurosyphilis. But the symptom that most set clinicians' teeth on edge was the euphoria of spirochete-induced mania, for the patients always denied illness because they felt great, which is still true today in terms of mania, and they had the capacity to bankrupt their families, as many of them did. Now, the later stages of neurosyphilis take one of two forms, and again, this is described in the history of medicine. If it affected primarily the spinal cord, so there's a, there's a neurotropic aspect of the spirochetes, and sometimes it predominantly affects the spinal cords, it would cause something known as tabes dorsalis, or wasting of the posterior part of the spinal cord. Tabes dorsalis would cause lancinating pains in the abdomen as well as a high-stepping gait that patients described as walking on cotton. But if the disease affected mainly the brain and not the spinal cord, the psychiatric symptoms would be foremost... Followed by dementia, eventually, and paralysis. And this form was known as general paralysis of the insane, or GPI. Dementia paralytica, or progressive paralysis. And this was the kind most commonly encountered in the end stages in asylums. Both forms of neurosyphilis are invariably fatal. And once a patient became symptomatic with the with third stage syphilis, that was the beginning of the end. So neurosyphilis is not one of the age-old diseases like melancholia. It seems to have been largely unknown before the last quarter of the 18th century. Why this should be so is a mystery, since syphilis has been documented in Europe since the Middle Ages. Yet it was only in the 1780s and after that physicians began reporting the first cases involving the central nervous system. Um, But I can speculate on why it might not have been recognized in that Basically, if you look at a model of illness Really before the scientific revolution I have to say the 1700s should have been there That a lot of people who had disturbed behavior The attribution would be Witchcraft, demon possession Basically, there would be a spiritual model of illness Before a more scientific model came about So it's possible that these actually Presentations were happening And no one really uh, could recognize them So... Um, So that's some historical examples of, uh, you know, medical causes of behavioral changes. All right. I want to shift gears now. Um, And I want to shift gears and talk a little bit about some basic neuroanatomy and neurophysiology. I'm going to spend a fair amount of time focusing on the autonomic nervous system, which you actually have in your handout. And perhaps um, I'm going to start there, and then I'll talk more about the central nervous system. Um, The reason I'm giving you this information now in the talk is that when I get to the portion of talking about the clinical assessment, which includes the basic tools, which you probably know by now, the basic tools of clinical assessment in medicine are universal, the taking of the history, the physical exam. And in psychiatry, we have a psychiatric mental status examination that we document, and I will go through all the aspects of that. And there's also what I call the neurological mental status examination or the cognitive examination. Uh, and then lastly, laboratory. Uh, so that, those are the, you know, the building blocks of a clinical assessment in, uh, in medicine. Um, but I want to talk about the autonomic nervous system because a lot of the signs and symptoms of medical illness presenting as behavioral problems will manifest themselves in autonomic disturbances. So some familiarity with the autonomic nervous system will sort of help later when you're sort of scratching your head with a case going, is this medical or is this psychiatric? Um, So the autonomic nervous system is, I think, just talk about elegant design. I mean, it's really incredible if you think about it um, because basically it is an interface between your brain and the rest of your body. And if you think about it, I mean, it, it... the brain and the rest of your body there, is intimately connected, right? I mean, it's, basically you have the neurological connection. You have electrical impulses going down and out and also sensing and bringing it back up. You also have, in the autonomic nervous system, you have a beautiful interface of a neuroendocrine interface. So basically that's in the adrenal medulla, the adrenal glands, which rest right on top of your kidneys bilaterally. They're small glands, but they're incredibly potent and powerful glands. So the sympathetic nervous system, really interesting, comes off your spinal cord from T1, so the top of the thoracic spine, to L2, the, top, you know, the relative top of the lumbar spine. So essentially, it's, it comes off your spine here. Now, it goes to multiple different organs in your body. Um, and in fact, the ones most commonly that we think about are the heart. So the cardiac effects of the sympathetic nervous system, sympathetic nervous system, fight or flight, right? Get ready to roll. It's the caveman response. You have a beast in front of you. It's kill or be killed or run away, climb up a tree, whatever you need to do. Everybody knows the fight or flight response, right? I mean, even if you don't have panic disorder or PTSD or other psychiatric illnesses, we've all had, like speaking for myself, had panic attacks at least a handful of times in your life. That's fight or flight that's your adrenals, among other things, squeezing um, and telling your body to, to light up. So your heart is huge in that because you need to your heart needs to go faster to pump more blood and get more oxygen oops, to your peripheral tissues. It also affects the lungs, which is really interesting. It actually is a is a bronchodilator, so your lungs get bigger so you bring in more oxygen, so you can feed the tissues to to fight or flee. Um, it also feeds back to the gastrointestinal system. But there's an interface with your adrenals. And basically, you have electrical impulses coming out of your sympathetic nervous system, and they're interfacing in your adrenal. And it's telling the adrenal glands to put up more adrenaline and noradrenaline. So basically, you have this interface of the neuro and the endocrine. The endocrine is pumping out this fight-or-flight chemical that goes throughout your entire body. And of course, the fight-or-flight chemical, adrenaline and noradrenaline, they go straight to your brain, right? I mean, it's going into your bloodstream, the veins are taking it back to the heart, and then, you know, it's getting oxygen, it's coming back, and boom, it's going to your brain. So not only is your brain getting oxygen and glucose, which are the two building blocks of metabolism in your brain, also getting a shot of adrenaline. And that's where you get that subjective sense of anxiety, basically, on a, on a neuroanatomical level. Um, so I just think that's a very, you know, elegant interface. Um, there's also neurovascular interface as well. Um, so basically, these sympathetic nerves go to your, your major blood vessels in particular and basically increase your blood pressure by decreasing the diameter. So it's like squeezing on a hose to make the pressure go up, and it makes the blood pump harder and faster to your brain, to your muscles, to your whole body, to your heart as well. So the sympathetic nervous system is fight or flight. It comes from T1 to L2, um, it has some neuroendocrine interface. It also there, it, it innervates your, your gastrointestinal tract and your genital urinary tract as well. And it actually slows, um, slows it down. But that's a relatively minor characteristic. So the sympathetic nervous system. Okay, let's look at the parasympathetic nervous system. Now, not every organ has input from each of them, but many of them do. But the parasympathetic nervous system is rest- And digest, basically. Um, And so what it does is it actually slows everything down. So it's at a period of time when there's no danger about, um, when it sort of is, I think, more of what we would call a homeostatic type of system, right? I mean, because think of your body, how amazing it is, the things it does without you having to think about it, right? Breathing, for example, pumping blood, oxygenating tissue, putting oxygen from the air into your system, just all of these incredible things. So the parasympathetic system is, is a homeostatic type of system. So, And it's also very elegant. And what I, what I think is really interesting about the parasympathetic nervous system is that it actually comes from your brain. It doesn't come from your spinal cord. There's some minor branches in the sacral region, S2 to S4, They're not minor in that they govern sexual activity and urinary activity, so they're really not minor. But I think the more elegant part of the system is in the brain, um, and that is it comes from your midbrain. And your midbrain has basically where the cranial nerves are located, and and the medulla is below the midbrain. So basically you have the parasympathetic nervous system coming directly out of the brain. So where does it go? It goes to your eyes. So basically your pupils will constrict urinus, Think of a darker setting, rest and digest. It'll go to your salivary glands. It'll stimulate your salivary glands to produce saliva to digest your food, rest and digest. And it really, it goes to your heart. It slows your heart down in, 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 you know, in um, opposition to what the sympathetic nervous system is doing. It goes to your lungs. It relatively constricts your lungs. But the most interesting thing is, is going to your gastrointestinal tract. And basically... Um, Making for peristalsis, so that the food goes through, it goes to your liver, it goes to your pancreas, it goes to your gallbladder. And one of the cranial nerves is called the vagus. It's cranial nerve 10, and vagus there is the Latin root of wandering. And the vagus is amazing, because it comes out on both sides. It goes through something called the jugular foramen, and then it goes down both sides of your esophagus, just I mean, you can imagine these two wires, it's a wiring system from your brain to the rest of your body. And then it goes um, my anatomy gets a little bit sketchy at this point, but it goes basically goes to, to your gut as well, gut structures. And the vagus basically um, enhances your digestion and, your, and peristalsis. But it's just the, the design is just really in, ingenious, in my opinion. So basically, you have the sympathetic and the parasympathetic in parallel now a lot of medical conditions that cause behavioral changes a lot of them and this will help us later when we look at the cases a lot of them are sympathetic so they're the you'll see things that are the result of too much sympathetic but you'll also see the blocking of parasympathetic so you'll get the opposite action of rest and digest and that can look similar to sympathetic so if you block the parasympathetic system, you block the rest and digest, you actually can get almost a rebound of symptoms that are look like they're sympathetic. So you, sometimes there are ways to sort that out, and we'll hopefully get to that as well. Um, and the other thing is, well, we'll talk about alcohol and depressant intoxication withdrawal. That's a special interest of mine, and we see a lot of it at the general, um, as Jeff can attest to. Um, so that's sort of a Quick and dirty, how does a clinician look at it? So when I get to talking about the physical exam, the psychiatrist is not that good at the physical exam, but there are certain things I can look at every time that are easy to look at um, that I assess when I see patients. So, um, but I wanted to read again from another book to talk a little bit about what I would call functional neuroanatomy of the central nervous system central nervous system being brain and spinal cord I'm going to focus on the brain and you know clearly the brain is incredibly complicated and as a clinician I'll be you know I really have to admit to you I don't really understand the neuroanatomy and neurophysiology of the brain as a neurologist probably does or certainly as a neuroscientist does but what I do is I understand enough to be able to interpret behavior and interpret physical and neurological exam findings to know sort of where they're coming from Um, So I'm going to give you just sort of a quick functional view of what parts of the brain do what kind of things. So bear with me. Um, And then I'll just point this book out to you quickly. So this, um, I'll call this a Bible, actually, um, in that it is a very comprehensive textbook. It's not really a sacred text either. Um, This is the guidebook for... Consultation Liaison Psychiatrists And Consultation Liaison Psychiatrists Are those who specialize in doing consultation To medical and surgical units And that's part of my job at San Francisco General Is to consult in the medical ER But this is a book from Mass General um, This is the sixth edition from 2010 But it's absolutely comprehensive In terms of Consultation Liaison Psychiatry so, And it would work as a reference text um, And it's, it's really pretty clearly written as well but um, I was really taken with this, uh, this one chapter, the start of it. So this is from Chapter 5. The title of the chapter is Functional Neural Anatomy. Um, the brain is a complex and mysterious organ, which is true. Sealed away in its cranial vault, it is immune from the poking, prodding, visualizing, and auscultating that are central to the examination of other organs. The assessment of the brain and its peripheral extensions requires an indirect approach, one that evaluates the integrity of its functional capacity. Because there are many faculties associated with the brain, this functional assessment is lengthy. And complex, and so that's why we have the neurological exam, the psychiatric mental status exam, and the neurological mental status exam, um, as as well as you know labs, uh, as well and imaging. At its most basic level, the nervous system allows us to interact with the external world, serving as a bridge between the environment and our internal mental and physical worlds. So put another way, the nervous system allows us to respond in some fashion to environmental stimuli. In simpler organisms, there is little or no gap between stimulus and response, allowing little or no variability of response to a specific stimulus. In humans, however, there is a large evaluation step which allows a carefully chosen response to a stimulus, one that may be influenced by the situational context. Now, when I first first read this, I was thinking about... What about all those times I acted really impulsively and said something really stupid and didn't bother with an evaluation phase? Anybody else have that similar experience? I mean, it's sort of like this isn't an ideal world. We actually think before we speak. Um, But I certainly have patients who um, skip the evaluation phase as well. (laughs) Using an information processing model, we can map these concepts in three distinct steps. And this is critical. So input... Input of sensory information through perceptual modules. And basically what that means is your five senses. um, Taste, smell, touch, vision, and hearing. And, you know, think about it. Basically, when you get this information from the world, it it goes through a part of your brain called the thalamus. That's sort of a midbrain structure that is below the cortex. And the thalamus is like a relay center for sensory um, signals. And then the thalamus kicks it up to the cortex. The second step, the first step is input. The second step is the internal integration and evaluation. Evaluation of this information and the production of a response. So what's your response? So input, evaluation, response. So the evaluation part clearly is done by your cortex. I mean, the cortex is what separates human from lower mammals, the fact that we have this big cap thinking cap so to speak gray matter and white matter and the cortex and again this is you know if you think about it it's kind of intuitive it's like so you take in all this information okay you have the sensory information and then you're like you have to like put it in a context right so think of yourself things that normally make you fearful people you don't like on a gut level a gut level right their limbic system is sort of giving your cortex information it's like hey that guy looks like he's probably okay, but I'm going to tell you, he reminds me of this other guy who really screwed me over a year ago. So it's sort of like that's the irrational part of your brain As the limbic system is also weighing in. So your cortex has all this sensory information coming in, but lower, lower structures in your brain are weighing in saying, you know, they're giving you information um, to put it in context. So then there's the output. So the thalamus is the sensory relay station, the cortex is sort of the thinking cap Um, and there are different parts of the cortex are important again i'm getting to the edge of my knowledge base but the prefrontal cortex is important and the parietal cortex where there's a lot of association neurons but the players involved in this sort of like wait a second we're not so sure about what we're seeing is referred to as um, the medial temporal lobe and aspects of the medial temporal lobe these are a couple of areas you probably have read about or heard about, the hippocampus and the amygdala. And to put it really simply, the hippocampus is your memory storehouse. So your hippocampus is essential to putting in, it, putting in information, input, storing it, and then it needs to be retrieved from there. So your cortex, basically, it's stuffing information in your hippocampus. Your hippocampus is storing it, and then it's pulling it out when it needs it. Now, that point's important. When I get to the assessment phase, we're going to talk about a cognitive assessment and why it's important to test attention. You need Someone has to have intact attention to be able to remember. So we're going to just remember that little factoid of input, storage, and retrieval. And then the other part of your medial temporal lobe that's important is the amygdala. And the amygdala I sort of think of as the, like, The warning system basically that it goes off It's like it's the emotion it's the fear It's that that's where fear is centered and that's where conflict is centered Um, So that's the part that throws in the sort of perhaps irrationality that maybe you should pay attention to The last piece is the response and the response clearly it's motor cortex, right? I mean a lot of your cortex governs our our motion But there's a part of the brain also called the basal ganglia and the basal ganglia help with coordination and integrating motor response. And some of the terms in the basal ganglia you may have heard of, the there's the caudate, the putamen, the striatum, um, and the globus pallidus. Those are the four main areas of the basal ganglia. We'll hopefully get back to those. Like for In Parkinson's disease, for example, it's a um, problem with the striatum. There's not enough dopamine released in the striatum. And other, There are other Huntington's is Also in the basal ganglia And then your cerebellum, your poor little cerebellum Which is at the back near your brainstem, It's the one that helps you with balance and coordination So the cerebellum weighs in So that is a super Quick and dirty tour through um, Input, evaluation And response, so I hope that wasn't too Rapid, but that's, you know I like to think of things in sort of schematic Simple terms, so I'm going to Try to pull all this autonomic nervous system stuff and the central nervous system stuff i'm going to try to pull it into my evaluation phase so um oh and by the way i didn't say this on the front end i'm going to talk for another 20 or to 30 minutes and then i'm going to present two cases as well and in the cases i'm going to ask for some um input from you guys and your opinions uh and then we'll take questions after that so just just let you know the format um okay Now, um, I want to talk about delirium. And you have a lot of information on your sheet about delirium. Um, And the reason I want to talk about delirium is that it's probably, for the consultation liaison psychiatrist and for the emergency room doctor, it's probably the most important diagnosis to make. Because by definition, delirium has a medical cause. But delirium, or it's also called sometimes acute confusional state, altered mental status, brain failure, acute brain failure, those are the they're kind of synonyms, um, that basically it's really important to try to find out what's causing it. Because the symptoms look psychiatric, and historically a GP or an internist would say, Doctor, can take this patient away, this guy is clearly crazy. Can you just get him out of my ER and bring him to psych? And so it's incumbent on me to know whether the person has a medical illness that's causing the behavior problem. So this topic is not just a theoretical interest, it's of practical importance. And so things have gotten much better over the years, um, certainly in the last 15 or 20 years I think the recognition of delirium has gotten much better among internists, surgeons, general practitioners, et cetera. So delirium basically, and you can see the diagnostic criteria on the handout, um, basically I don't have it memorized, so I'm going to have to look also. Um, So, basically, it's an alteration, disturbance of consciousness. That seems so vague, doesn't it? I mean, it's. (laughs) um, But what it means is reduced clarity of awareness in the environment. And what it means is kind of a waxing and waning level of consciousness. For example, some people are excessively sleepy or excessively agitated. And it, there's a reduced ability to focus, sustain, or shift attention. And attention is critically important because a lack of attention, by definition, is delirium until proven otherwise. And you can contrast it with dementia, which is more chronic, in that until the very late stages of dementia, in early and moderate dementia, a person can pay attention. They just can't ret- retain, um, but they can pay attention. Um, So attention is really important. The second aspect is a change in cognition. And this could be a memory deficit. And we'll talk about how to test memory at the bedside. Disorientation or a language disturbance. And the disorientation is also critically important. So if you're an intern on call and you want to do a good screen for delirium and it's 3 in the morning and you just want to go back to bed or you have another case to admit, there's two things you need to ask. Attention and orientation, I mean clearly, you need to look at the chart and see what the history was and see what the everything else, but test attention and orientation, so those things really tip you off to delirium and it 's a uh, disturbance that develops over a short pe- period, usually hours to days, and tends to fluctuate during the course of the day so basically it 's someone who there 's an abrupt onset of psychiatric symptoms, and that 's super important in looking at the history. How long have the symptoms been there? When did they start? And what's going on with the patient medically when that happened? So I'll talk about history. I'm going to talk about history right now, I think, because it's so important. So the history is key. And there's a few things that are absolutely essential. So basically, when did the psychiatric symptoms start? What exactly are the symptoms? So describe what they are. Is it you know, violence? Is it um, anxiety and agitation? Is it sort of, you know, depression? Is it mania? Is it psychosis? And psychosis, for all intents and purposes, refers to being out of contact with reality, but practically it really refers to the presence of delusions and or hallucinations. So delusions are firmly fixed false beliefs. The most common delusions we see in delirium are paranoia, because you've lost your bearings, Right? You're in what you think is a strange environment. Well, hospital is a strange environment, and that's where most deliria occur. You're, you don't have your bearing, so it's natural to be fearful in that setting because you not, might not even know who you are. You don't know where you are. You don't know who the person in front of you is, so it's natural to be fearful. So paranoia is really common in delirium. And then hallucinations are common as well, and basically hallucinations are perceptual Perceptual disturbances, and basically, it's sort of sensing something that is not there at all. This is contrasted with illusions. Illusions are misinterpreting things that are actually there. A classic visual illusion in a hospital room is seeing the monitor, your cardiac monitor, and telling you, the doctor, I watched a movie on that last night. It was great. I mean, I've had people tell me that. I had guys tell me their IV pole. Was a fishing line, and they're fishing. I mean, it just basically there is really an IV pole there, but they've interpreted it as a fishing pole. Um, so basically, it's misinterpreting something. There's so, uh, someone's waxing the floors at three in the morning. They say there's air, there's jets taking off in the hallway, doc. So basically, there're real things going on, but you're misinterpreting them. Those are illusions, hallucinations. You're conjuring them from nowhere. So delusions and hallucinations are examples of psychotic symptoms often seen in delirium. Now, with delirium, the most common hallucinations are in the visual realm and the tactile realm. So people reporting seeing things and people reporting things crawling on their skin, um, things like that. Those are by far the most common in delirium. Now, that's not to say you can't get auditory hearing things or hearing voices. Auditory hallucinations delirium you can absolutely but like classic schizophrenia for example you have auditory hallucinations and not visual or tactile so just a little factoid there Um, and then this fluctuation during the course of the day there is this phenomenon that you may have heard of called sundowning um, that people get much worse at night and think about you know you lose your bearings again right it's daytime you know, the nurses are coming in, the doctors are coming in, lunch comes, the physical therapist comes. What time is it? Oh, it's three, it's four, it's five. Then when the sun goes down, fewer people are coming in um, that basically delirium often waxes and wanes, and it seems to get worse at nighttime. But there's definitely a waxing and waning pattern. Um, so I'm going to talk about the differential diagnosis of delirium now. I'm going to shift gears You know what? I'm gonna I'm I'll take that back. I'm gonna talk about assessment next because that's the heart of this, and then we'll talk about the differential diagnosis along the way. And the differential diagnosis of delirium is on your handout as well. Um, And it's funny, you probably already have noticed this that medical people love um, uh, they love what's the word I'm looking for, boy? Word finding problems of middle age here. The um, they're not malaprops, mnemonics? mnemonics. Yeah. Oh my God. Mnemonics, yeah. And this one, I've never seen this mnemonic. And In fact, I'll be honest with you, I just noticed it today. Uh, Vindictive mad. I thought that was pretty good. Because what I usually do, I don't know about you guys in mnemonics, I usually chuck the mnemonics, basically. And I I like to do it the hard way. I like to sort of think through and write down what all the systems are. But that's just the way my brain works or doesn't work. Um, So let's talk about assessment, because that's where the heart of it is. And basically... Assessment starts with index of suspicion, right? What is a differential diagnosis? If you don't think of it, you're probably not going to find it, right? Now, the problem with differential diagnosis is, in this realm, you see this list, right? And there's another table in this book that has a list of medications that can cause all sorts of different psychiatric symptoms. Delirium, mania, depression, psychosis, there's a list this long. So kind of after a while, and I'll have to say I've been victim of this myself, after a while you're like, eh, it's probably just this or that, and you sort of forget about this long, long differential. And 99 times out of 100, you're fine, right? You actually know what what it is or you think you know what it is. Um, So having said that, still constructing a differential diagnosis, maybe not as long as your arm, but perhaps, you know, 6 to 10 items, you know, a decent differential and if it's something rarer than that, you'll hopefully get around to it eventually. So a differential diagnosis relies on an index of suspicion. You have to think about it. Okay. So what are the clues for a person in their history? So taking a good history includes a good medical history. Um, it includes a good psychiatric history. It includes a medication list. It includes a substance abuse and alcohol history. Really important. Uh, in the populations I work with. And what do you look for in all those things? So you look in the psychiatric history, presence or absence of a prior psychiatric illness. So if someone's had 10 episodes of schizophrenia and they come in and they're hearing voices and they don't look medically ill and they're you know agitated and anxious, but their vital signs are fine and everything else is fine, it's probably a psychotic episode of schizophrenia and you don't really have to think too much harder about delirium. But if you have signs or symptoms, but if you have a guy who comes in as psychotic, who's in his 50s, who has no psychiatric history, bipolar, no, dep- not even depression, not even anxiety, never been on sleeping pills, I mean, nothing, and they abruptly become psychotic, it's like you've got to start thinking about investigating, both with the physical exam and labs, trying to find out what might be causing that. And that person needs to be admitted to a medical unit and not a psychiatric unit usually to do the investigation not always so the history so psychiatric history basically presence or absence of psychiatric history helps you medical history is really important there's lots of medical conditions that are associated with behavioral problems Um, endocrine disorders are a great example thyroid disease in extreme forms either hyper or hypo can cause psychiatric symptoms hypoglycemia causes confusion and is potentially life-threatening so if you have someone who's diabetic and they're having a hypoglycemic episode then you have to jump on that Um, hypertension heart disease chronic obstructive pulmonary disease those are all things that might put you in a position of not getting enough blood to your brain so um, basically looking at the medical history and then looking at medications and again medications there are some really common offenders Corticosteroids, things like prednisone, cause at a certain dose, it's dose-related response. You get to a certain dose, you're going to get you know, steroid psychosis, so you're going to get mania or insomnia or something else. Um, so anyway, you need to get a good history. Um, and then you need to get that time course of the current symptoms, so abrupt onset in someone with no prior psychiatric history. Um, so let's go on to the physical exam. And for a psychiatrist, the most important part of the physical exam is the, are the vital signs. I mean, I'll be honest with you. Psychiatrists, I mean, I was not that good at the physical exam. I was not that good with procedures. I'm really good at taking a history, but I can certainly observe and be observant. So um, vital signs are key. Um, so clearly hypertension, tachycardia, which is a rapid heart rate, fever, um, high respiratory rate, Um, Hypotension, low pulse, all those things will alert you that there might be a medical illness going on Um, Eyes, look at the eyes, and we're back to the autonomic nervous system If you have pupillary dilatation, that tells you that there's a sympathetic um, hyper-response going on Um, The skin is really important Do you have sweating? Do you have goose flesh or piloerection? Do you have flushing? And again, that's also an autonomic nervous system response so basically sweating is a, is a sympathetic response, preparing you for battle, so to speak. Um, so vital signs, eyes, skin, and then motor behavior. How, what, what is it? Are they super restless? Are they jumping around? You know, Are they going into a fighting stance? Do they have a tremor? Do they have stiff muscles? All of those things give you clues that there may be something medical going on that's causing it. Vital signs, eyes, skin... Motor and then let's get to the mental status exam So I'm going to describe the psychiatric mental status exam first So the purpose of the psychiatric mental status exam um, Basically is to identify what is the current condition in a very rough sense, right? So basically is this person Have whoops mania Anxiety Depression Delirium like an acute confusional state Dementia, um, basically, to sort of suss it out in a very general sense, what do I have right now? Now, the thing is, if you think about it, what do I have right now might not be that important to long term diagnosis. To make a long term psychiatric diagnosis, you need a lot of data over many, many years, so it's hard to jump to a psychiatric diagnosis, but at least I can say this is what I'm looking at right now. And when you do a consult in the ER or in the hospital, It's very, very important to see what's going on right now, particularly with respect to the cognitive exam. Um, So the psychiatric mental status exam appearance. So what do they look like? What's their grooming like? What is their um, level of cooperation? What is their eye contact? um, Speech, how how fast, how loud? Um, Is it a normal rhythm? Uh, Affect describes to what they are showing you. What is their face showing you? So someone who's depressed may have a sad affect or a crying or tearful affect. Someone who's psychotic and paranoid might have a vigilant or fearful affect. Then mood. Mood is what the patient describes their feeling internally. And sometimes the mood and the affect don't line up. Um, Thought process. How organized are they in their thought process? Um, Perceptions. So inquiring about hallucinations. And then delusions is their presence or absence of delusions. And the most common delusions we see in a psychiatric setting, paranoia, grandiosity, sometimes jealousy, um, sometimes delusions of identity. Um, their identity has been swapped out. There's all sorts of delusions. Um, and then uh, insight, how well do they understand whether you know, that they have an illness? Judgment, how well are they making decisions? Impulse control. So that's like the quick and dirty psychiatric mental status exam. And there's certain, you know, vocabulary that we use to sort of describe someone. You would add up all the findings and say this person roughly is manic right now or this person is roughly psychotic right now or this person's depressed right now. And so you integrate the psychiatric mental status exam with the history of what is actually going on. I'm going to run on to neurological mental status exam or the cognitive exam. And this is probably in terms of content for this course, probably the most important thing, um, in that it's the most useful thing for picking up um, delirium and picking up, in general, medical causes of a change in behavior. So the mental status exam, there's, there are standardized mental status exams. There's something called the mini mental status exam, which is a 30-point scale. There's a delirium rating scale. But essentially what you're doing is you're testing different functions of the brain, basically, The first thing you test is attention, is attention. And there are different ways to test attention. I mean, you can test attention just in a conversation, like, is this person tracking the conversation or not? But there are formal ways to test it at the bedside. One is a digit span. So you give somebody five digits, and you have them repeat the digits back. If they do that like this, you might do six just for, for grins. You might do seven. So you or I should be able to do five, six, or seven easily. So when you do less than five, you're going, mm, I wonder about this person's attention. So you give them a four-digit span, and then you give them a three-digit span. And then, you know, you basically, by that mechanism, see if they have a problem with attention. The also classic one is spelling the word world backwards, D-L-R-O-W. Okay, I'm attention. My attention's intact. Um, and the other is registering four words have them remember later so the memory testing that i do that most people do is giving people three or four words to repeat back to you and the reason you want to repeat them back to you is you're doing two things one is you're testing their attention can they pay attention enough to register or put in the the words into their cortex and if they can't so if someone can't attend basically your cognitive exam is over because you can't test their memory if they can't register three or four words. So they can't pay attention to test their calculations, naming. You have people name things. You have people repeat things. You have people draw clocks. And basically, these different things test roughly different cortical functions. For example, drawing a clock is a parietal, non-dominant parietal function because you need to be able to visualize something in space, and it's also memory as well. So you need to take in, take it in um, in a written form and then put it back out in a written form. So basically, you're testing um, all of those things. So if there's a problem with attention, and then orientation, of course. So orientation, very basic. What's your name? What's the name of this place? What's the day of the week? What's the date today? What's the month? What's the year? What time is it? Um, So the worse the orientation is greater the probability that they have a delirium or acute cognitive problem So essentially if you have someone who can't attend and is disoriented you've got delirium um, so then basically i'll move on to the um To the differential diagnosis. I want to get that's also the other sort of heart of this So the differential diagnosis as you can see from your handout is extremely wide um and actually, this is not, this is not bad, um, the, the differential diagnosis of delirium. Um, and if you look at it, it really covers the most common causes. Now, I'm going to tell you for sure at San Francisco General Hospital, 95% of delirium is either substance intoxication or substance withdrawal. So our index of suspicion... at San Francisco General Hospital is substance (coughs) intoxication or substance withdrawal. And I'll try to spend a little time talking more about that. But I want to go over the rest of the differential because if you forget entirely about the rest of the differential, there's a chance you're going to miss something really important. So this is just the differential is really a way for you to sort of run through in your mind. Could it be any of these things? And so, you know, you look at your history, your physical you look at your labs, and I, I don't think I'm going to have enough time to talk about specific lab findings, um, although I'm going to have to for the cases, so I'll take that back. So you look at the history, the physical, the labs, and sort of go through this list. Could it be this or not? And that's where the psychiatrist and the internist, the ER doc, the GP, the surgeon, you can have a really good discussion. You know. And that's kind of why, for me, I like to keep a bit of a medical hat because I like to be able to have an informed discussion about the differential. You know, Sometimes... You know, many times you don't know what's causing it. And in fact, you say, this is delirium. I don't know what's causing it, but it's delirium. So, but you really are incumbent to sort of consider this list. So vascular is really important. And if you look at this quickly, extreme hypertension, um, uh, stroke, either of a hemorrhagic nature or ischemic. Ischemic meaning not getting enough blood to an area. Um, uh, hypotension or shock. And then there's vasculitis really interesting cause of behavioral changes. And you may know that um, SLE, systemic (coughs) lupus erythematosus, has a fairly common presentation of psychiatric issues, both delirium and psychosis. And it's thought to be that there's problems with the blood vessels in the the brain of vasculitis. Um, Infectious. Infectious is a very important thing in the differential. I mean, the good news is with infection, usually it declares itself with a fever and a high white count. And so you don't have to guess. You know, wow, this person's probably delirious because their temperature is 104.5, and their, you know, their white cell count is 25,000, and they clearly have a pneumonia or a sepsis or something. Um, but there are specific brain <clears throat> infections as well. Having come here in 1988 um, with HIV in the city, HIV just—I don't have time to go into it—but HIV is also considered a great mimicker of psychiatric illness. And I have to say, unfortunately, I I sort of saw a lot of psychiatric symptoms from HIV before the onset of antiretrovirals. So when people had T cells going below 100, below 50, and viral loads going through the roof, and we had no treatment other than treating infections that came up, saw a lot of opportunistic infections, cryptococcal meningitis, uh, CNS toxoplasmosis, um, you know, sepsis, tuberculosis, et cetera. Um, and HIV itself is neurotropic as well, so I saw a lot of cases with HIV dementia, and uh, essentially, um, working on 7B, which was the the um, HIV focus ward as an intern, and probably half the cases were people with HIV dementia waiting for placement. It was a very frustrating um, time in medicine. But now, twenty years later, we see that we have effective treatments for HIV. And I see very little HIV dementia now. I used to see HIV-induced mania. I saw it fairly often. Don't see it. Uh, HIV-induced psychosis and all these opportunistic infections, we just don't see them. So it's really it's, it's a blessing what, what the medications have done. Um, neoplastic, so cancer. Um, obviously, structural lesions can cause behavior problems. Degenerative de- diseases. These are some of the worst, most wicked diseases. Um, Huntington's chorea. Um, Wilson's disease, and, uh, and the dementias, the array of dementias. And then um, next on the list, intoxication. I'm going to come back to this. Um, and particularly stimulant intoxication and depressant withdrawal. I'm going to come back. Uh, congenital, uh, traumatic, obviously, so um, just even concussions without any real finding on brain imaging, but also any of these... Um, Uh, hematoma subdural or otherwise Uh, vitamin deficiency really really interesting again rarely see this here actually in africa i saw um, i saw several cases of pellagra where you have dementia and dermatitis and stuff you read about you don't see here Um, and then wernicke syndrome is something with acute alcohol intoxication we have an acute thiamine deficiency don't see that much anymore Endocrine is very important in metabolic in fact probably of the next five percent of deliria where I work are probably in this range particularly metabolic So that's why we get a renal panel. That's why we get electrolytes So we want to look at look at kidney function. We want to look how much sodium potassium calcium magnesium phosphorus And then what are your liver function tests? What are your coagulation factors Um, Those are things we get routinely in a workup, in labs. Um, And then there's uh, rarer things that we look for, um, and I'm not going to really have time to get to these things, but there's things like acute intermittent porphyria, Wilson's disease, um, things to keep in the back of your mind. And I've I've ordered tests for these things, and I have to say I don't think any of them have ever come up positive, but if I have somebody with a first-break psychosis, so someone who's never had a psychotic episode... I worked them up the first time, and this is the standard of care, of working them up with brain imaging and labs just to make sure you're not missing a medical cause rather than saying, oh, this poor person's going to have schizophrenia. If you can find a medical cause for the psychosis, then you've done them a service by not tagging them with a chronic psychiatric illness. Um, so that's, that's the basic uh, long differential diagnosis. But let me talk about alcohol withdrawal. Um, Number one cause of delirium in in the general hospital. Um, so basically, alcohol withdrawal. If you think about it, alcohol, is a systemic depressant, right? So, and you can sort of lump in benzodiazepines, so things like Valium and Clonopin and Ativan and barbiturates. You can sort of lump them all together as system depressants. When you remove a depressant, what do you get? Huh? You get a sympathomimetic storm. Because basically you've been suppressing the sympathetic nervous system just damping it down and when you take it away you get a rebound So what do you get you get heart racing you get tachycardia you get hypertension you get sweating you get shaking so uh, You get pupillary dilatation. So you get basically a sympathetic storm and You know, since alcohol is so prevalent, you can usually get a history as people who are heavy drinkers, you get a history of when their last drink was, so you have this index of suspicion for it. Fortunately, the treatment is pretty straightforward. It's basically giving them benzodiazepines as a substitute and sort of then tapering them off of it over time, and then supportive care, fluids, nutrition, um, making sure they don't have any other um, medical illnesses. The other thing we see a lot of at San Francisco General is stimulant intoxication, methamphetamines in particular, and injecting methamphetamines um, is a way to almost guarantee you're going to have psychosis. And the reason you have psychosis is a dopamine uh, excess. And it, this is sort of a classic model of psychosis, is a dopamine excess. And the old antipsychotics, things like Haldol and Thorazine, they block dopamine. So unfortunately, they block dopamine throughout your whole system. And that's why they're not you know, very good medications because they cause a lot of side effects from suppressing your dopamine. Um, I'm actually, given the time, I'm going to move into the cases, if that's okay. And, I, you know, I apologize. I feel like I'm kind of racing through a lot of material, but I want to at least give you a taste of of all of this stuff. So, um, so we'll do cases, and uh, then we'll have time for questions, so. I can find my cases. Uh, I wasn't trying to be very tricky, so, <laughs> which I guess is probably good, or too obscure either. Uh, oh, I'm really in trouble if I don't have my cases. Aha! Uh-huh. I have cases. All right. So case one, um, this is a case I see probably two or three times every day I go to work at the General. I probably shouldn't have told you that. That's such a good clue. Oh, well, play along with me. Um, but I thought it would give you sort of a typical case. So Mr. M is a 54-year-old white male, has an unknown psychiatric history, Brought in by the police on a 5150 hold to the psychiatric emergency room for an evaluation of agitation and suicidal thoughts His initial vital signs are a heart rate of 140 A blood pressure of 145 over 100 A temperature of 99.2 and respiratory rate of 16 His oxygen saturation is 97% on room air Um, Do you guys know the normals of all those things or roughly or so? Um, He's initially when he comes in he's oriented to person place day date month and year He doesn't smell of alcohol Um, He not very forthcoming about his alcohol and drug history He admits to drinking a few beers now and then and that he hasn't uh, smoked Marijuana or methamphetamine in at least a week Um, (laughs) So really you don't really know um, What that means Uh, So he denies a history of cardiac disease. He says he has hypertension, but he's been taking his medications. Um, His pulse of 140 is regular, and he presents as anxious and fidgety. He has dilated pupils, but denies lightheadedness, heart racing, chest discomfort, or shortness of breath. He is sweating mildly and has a, a fine bilateral hand tremor on exam. And I decide just rather than sending him to the ER, I think, well... Uh, I'm just going to give him some extra fluids and give him some benzodiazepine. So I give him 3 milligrams of lorazepam, which is a fairly hefty dose by mouth, but he looks like a guy that could benefit from it, basically to bring his heart rate down, bring his blood pressure down, treat his anxiety. And if it is alcohol withdrawal, which we see a lot, it would begin to treat that as well. So it's kind of a non-specific but useful treatment. And uh, it makes me think about medical causes associated with anxiety, tachycardia and agitation um, so he's lucid enough he gives us a name and phone number of his roommate who who we call and if this is a critically important thing with history you got to talk to somebody else it can be anybody i let people you i talk to your brother your sister your friend your mother your shrink anybody your doctor um you got to get collateral sources of history you really really need that to put everything together so we call the roommate who says a patient usually drinks a quart of vodka every day, but he's been in jail for the last three days. So he's about day three, day four. He says a patient has no prior psychiatric history, no suicide attempts, not been on psych meds. He has no family psych history. Um, he's been incarcerated for substance possession and selling in the past. But four hours later, I get on to see some other cases, and I come back, and actually he's calmer. His pulse has gone down to 110 from 140, But he's alert, and if anything, he's a little too alert, almost to the point of hypervigilance. And at this time, he's oriented to person, city, and year only. He's unable to register four words. He's unable to perform a digit span. And then he says he's having visual hallucinations, and he feels bugs crawling on him. And the visual hallucinations are faces appearing on the wall, scary, like demonic, devil-type faces. And then his vital signs begin to skip all around. His blood pressure goes from 90 over 50 to 170 over 110. His heart rate goes between 60 and 150. And I'm like, it's time to send him to the ER because I can't handle those vital signs. So he gets uh, an intravenous line put in in the ER. Jeff Tabas puts it in himself and uh, gets the labs drawn. Um, so the labs, his complete blood count is normal. His metabolic panel, he has some mild dehydration. His liver function tests are somewhat elevated, but not too badly. But otherwise, his electrolytes are normal. Um, So anybody want to get a urine tox screen? Yeah. Um, So do you think we're going to find anything on the urine tox screen? I'll tell you right now, we don't. This is crazy. The general doesn't check for Cannabis doesn't check for cannabis in the tox screen. hasn't for about 15 years. I figured everybody in San Francisco is already smoking, I think. Um, I don't know why they took it off, but they stopped because they got so many positive. Um, I'll tell you the answer. So it was negative, actually. didn't have any stimulants um, on board. Um, But there was uh, benzodiazepines, which we had actually given him. Um, Not surprising because stimulants are usually cleared in a couple of days. So if you smoke crystal meth or even shoot it, usually within 48 hours it's out of your system. So you could have used meth three days earlier and it will be out of your system. Cocaine is similar as well. Who wants to check his thyroid? Anybody? I knew you would. Um, Actually, they're slightly abnormal. His TSH is is somewhat low, which means he has evidence of hypothyroidism. Um, Mild. Uh, and then we do an EKG. It's fast and it's a regular rate. So raise your hands if you think we should scan his brain. Who thinks we should scan his brain? Don't be shy. Why not? Why not? Why not? Let's get the million dollar work up. Let's get the Cadillac work up. Um, Dr. Tabus could weigh in this better than I could, but basically. Um, uh, probably not, and the reason is is this is that um, the neuro exam was done by the resident in the ER who's excellent and did a complete neuro exam, um, and it's non focal. In other words, there's no focal finding on the neuro exam, and that's one thing that tells us not to. Now, the case for doing the oh non focal meaning you didn't find any focal reflex change or focal weakness or an eye, facial droop or that basically there's a normal exam in terms of strength, sensory, and reflexes. Oops, sorry. Um, and the, but I will say this: so the people who raise your hand, you're not necessarily wrong, and I can tell you why. Because you can't really say a hundred percent for sure that this guy doesn't have a brain tumor or a brain infection or something that could be the cause of his delirium. So the most likely you wouldn't get it, but those who raise your hand and said get it. He, you can make a case for it. So that it's, it's a gray area. Um, Would you do a spinal tap? That's my next question. Um, in this case, we, we wouldn't. Um, the spinal tap usually is if people have a high fever and have neck signs. There are specific tests for testing meningeal rigidity, and the names are escaping me now. Um, but we usually don't get them unless there's a high fever. He's drinking a quart of vodka a day, and he's been for two or three days why isn't withdrawal an adequate diagnosis well it is oh yeah so why why is alcohol withdrawal not an adequate diagnosis and the answer to answer your question you're beating me to my punchline which is fine is that no 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 that yeah most likely it is i mean we see it a lot he's got the history for it and the thing that's different in this case is he's three days out and in fact this is one of the the teaching point here. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna go on, but I'll talk about it. So, um, so <laughs> now that I've told you what it is, um, so manic episode, thyrotoxic storm, alcoholic delirium tremens, hepatic encephalopathy, or panic disorder. Well, I mean, do you guys want to vote? <laughs> Prove to me how mu- how well you've been listening. DTS. DTs yeah, it's DTS. So. Um, but I want to talk about DTs really quickly. So, true delirium tremens is different than what I call garden variety alcohol withdrawal. Garden variety alcohol withdrawal you get in 12 to 24 hours after the last drink. So, if this guy hadn't been in jail for three or four days and they just dragged him off the street and he smelled of old alcohol, I said, When did you last drink? Ah, last night and he's shaking, and he's sweating, and his blood pressure is high. We see that all the time, basically, and that's what I call garden-variety alcohol withdrawal, in that you know the last drink was within 12 to 24 hours. The next thing that happens is people can get withdrawal seizures at about 48 hours out. But basically, delirium, true delirium tremens, which is what kills people in alcohol withdrawal, and what kills them is autonomic, there's that autonomic again, autonomic instability. Basically, their blood pressure goes like this. Their pulse goes like this. They go to the ICU, and the ICU doesn't know whether to raise the blood pressure, or lower the blood pressure. So basically, <clears throat> they end up dying because they, they can't control their blood pressure and heart rate. And that's, that's what kills people with delirium tremens. So that's why the index of suspicion, it's been four days. And the way he presented with the visual hallucinations and the bugs crawling It's kind of like, that's a pretty classic presentation, but sometimes it's more subtle. They may just be a little bit paranoid. But if you don't think the guy's last drink was four days ago, if you forget that, you may go, oh, this is like anxiety and paranoia, and this is psychiatric, and then, you know. But in this case, I had the obvious things, that he was disoriented, he couldn't attend, and then he had classic visual and tactile hallucinations, so... I believe it's about 30%. It's pretty high. The mortality from true delirium tremens is in that range. Jeff? Yeah. yeah, so the question is, is what percentage of people will die from delirium tremens? And the answer is 30%. And then the other answer is if you get... The question is if you get seizures, would you do more of a neurological workup then? Um, yeah, you would. I'm sure you would. Although, again, your index of suspicion would be, wow, this is probably alcohol withdrawal seizures. But now that he's has particularly this thing called status epilepticus where you have seizures you can't break, you're definitely going to go scan his brain as well. He may have fallen on his head. He may have been hit in jail. I mean, there's a lot of other things that could cause it. So at that point, and in the ER, it's more likely to get a CT scan than an MRI. The MRI has much better resolution, but the availability is a little bit harder. And the CT scan, computerized tomography, is a lot cheaper, readily available, and actually, for purposes of clearing things that can kill you, is pretty good. The MRI is a better, much better test with a better resolution. So, um, I want to do this other case, cause if you don't mind, and then we'll take general questions. So. To get- Did everybody hear the question or? So basically, what she's saying is that if we hadn't gotten the history, critical history, from the roommate, this guy was denying, I don't do that, I don't do that, and he didn't have classic alcohol withdrawal, but we got the history that he drinks a quart a day and has been in jail, confirmed that he'd been in jail, would we have noticed that it was alcohol withdrawal, delirium? Um, Probably not, but I would know it's delirium for sure. Um, It's very helpful to say with 95% certainty it's alcohol withdrawal delirium because the treatment is really clear. They get admitted to the ICU. They get IV fluids. They get benzodiazepines. But I would say it's delirium. So when I call my ER colleague, I'd say, well, this is delirium because the guy came in relatively clear, right? So initially not hallucinating, was oriented, um, had some elevated vital signs, but, but then... Over the course of four hours, remember, waxing and waiting, delirium waxes and wanes. So four hours later, classic delirium. So what I told you of the disorientation, the inattention, the visual hallucinations, the tactile, it's like, boom, it's classic delirium of some sort. In this case, it does fit very well with classic delirium and tremens of alcohol. But I would know enough to tell the ER, hey, you know, this is clearly a delirium. I don't know what it is. But basically what they would do is, you know, they would do a head CT at that point. They would do all the labs. And I think, you know, again, the importance of collateral information is key. We would, someone would try to chase it down. Maybe we'd have an old chart to say the guy's a heavy drinker. I mean, the investigation keeps keeps going. But you're right. I, I don't know if I wouldn't, I probably wouldn't have known, but I'd know it's delirium and I've got to get him to the medical side. So, Somebody else had a question about this case? or. Okay. All right, I'm going to run this next case because it's. I like it. Uh, Mr. G is a 45 year old bilingual, Mandarin and English speaking Chinese American man. He has a history of paranoid schizophrenia dating back to a first psychotic break in college. He's had 15 psychiatric admissions for psychosis since then. And the last one was six months ago when he had paranoia, auditory hallucinations, and he lost 30 pounds from his paranoia. He's been more stable overall because he's been on a monthly injection of Haldol um, decanoate, and he's been stable living out of board and care. On, this admission, uh, on the last admission six months ago, they increased his Haldol decanoate uh, from 100 to 150 milligrams every month. And actually, it worked really well for his psychosis. Um, he had a great reduction in his paranoia and his hallucinations, although he did say his thinking was slowed down and he had fatigue from the medicine. Um, He had some mild dysrhythmic involuntary movements of his face Chewing motions, and things like that and that actually has been noticed for the past three years and it was thought to be tardive dyskinesia Which is a a common uh, side effect of the old antipsychotics in particular Um, He has a medical history significant for hypertension hyperlipidine so high blood pressure high lipids and mild COPD from a 30 pack year history of smoking cigarettes Screen's negative for diabetes. His only medications are for blood pressure and lipids. But today, when you're on, in the medical emergency room, this time you're the intern in the medical emergency room. He's brought in at 8 o'clock at night. His board and care operator says he's having trouble walking. He's incontinent of urine. He's drooling. He has a fever. He's not eating, and he's not thinking right. So basically, the operator says this was an abrupt onset two days earlier, and his last injection of Haldol was two weeks prior. Um, He's been mostly staying in bed, but at night he starts screaming profanities. And when you see him, he's vigilant, anxious, and he's oriented only to person. So his vital signs, his heart rate is 124. His blood pressure is 160 over 96. His temperature is 101, which is (coughs) elevated. Respiratory rate is 24, elevated. His oxygen is 96%. His skin is flushed. He's sweaty. His neck is mildly tender on the midline. His chest shows very mild wheezing. His cardiac exam is essentially normal, except for a fast heart rate. His abdomen is normal. His neurological uh, mental status exam is, he's alert, he's oriented to person, but he believes he's in Shanghai and that it's 10 in the morning and that it's 2006. Uh, Couldn't complete the mental status exam because he had inattention. Um, he registered only 0 4 words, could only remember 3 digits, forward. And on exam, he has rigidity in both upper extremities. Um, his Otherwise, the neuro exam is, is pretty much normal except for stiffness. So psychiatrically, he presents as a thin Asian man wearing hospital clothes, lying on a gurney with an IV line in his forearm. He's sweaty and his face and neck are flushed. He appears moderately ill. Initially, his eyes are closed as if he's sleeping, but he then becomes arousable and actually starts yelling loudly and screaming and gesturing. He's able to calm down with support. His affect is vigilant, but he's overly focused with his eye contact. His speech is loud and unintelligible. On motor exam, his overall muscle tone's increased, his upper extremities are stiff, and there's moderate level of rigidity. He has little tremor, very little tremor. The tardive dyskinesia is noted. Mood, I can't tell. Uh, Thought process is disorganized with very little content. His level of consciousness is alternating between quiet with his eyes closed for several minutes at a time and then alternates with agitation and yelling loudly. He denies hallucinations, though he appears to be seeing things and peering around the room as if in response to visual hallucinations. He denies suicidal or homicidal ideation, so he's not suicidal or homicidal, but obviously he's not very reliable. Um, So his labs, Uh, his blood count, he has a white blood count of of 16,000. So um, it's a high white blood cell count, which can be indicative of an infection. His metabolic panel shows a BUN of 45, and the BUN is an indication of hydration status. It's a kidney function test, so he's a little bit dehydrated. And specifically, he has a creatinine kinase of 25,000. And the CK or CPK is basically an enzyme that's in skeletal muscle and other muscles. But that basically, have a breakdown of muscle, you can get an elevation in the CPK. And this is about 10 to 20 times elevated over normal, just normal wear and tear. Uh, his liver and kidney function otherwise is okay. Um, his electrolytes are fine. The thyroid is pending. Uh, urine tox screen is, is negative for illegal drugs. Um, they did send blood cultures because of the, temp- the fever. Um, and basically, his urinalysis is abnormal. He's got um, blood in his urine, um, and the chest X-ray is normal. And the urine. Uh, so my question for you is: Should we do brain imaging in him? In this guy, I don't even know the right answer. Who raise raise hands? Who would get it? Who would get brain imaging? The answer is, I'm not really sure. You probably would, because he has some neurological findings. He has increased muscle tone, and he clearly has an altered mental status. But in this case, it's hard to sort out. This is a guy with schizophrenia, and when he has a psychotic decompensation, he has paranoia, he hears voices, he's agitated and anxious. And that alteration in his level of consciousness... It's tricky because it's very similar to catatonia, so, which is a subset of schizophrenia but can be seen in other conditions. Um, so I would say probably yes. We're going to scan his brain. It's likely going to be normal, but I, I think probably would do that just to make sure he has a fever as well. Um, what about a lumbar puncture, a spinal tap? Yeah, I would probably, I think it'd be prudent to get a spinal tap. He has a fever, he has generalized stiffness, his neck is stiff, he's a poor historian. You know, you can do these really sensitive tests for meningitis, but it's with somebody who's at least trying to be with the program and he's not. So I think it'd be reasonable. So uh, let's just say, for the sake of argument, we did scan his brain and basically had some generalized atrophy, a little bit of a small brain, but there's no acute finding. And uh, the spinal tap was essentially normal, so he does not have meningitis. So, um, what, what, would, what would be the possible reasons for an elevated white blood count? Well, it's a good question, and I think there, you can get it with just a stress response. I mean, the last thing we want to do if we think there's something physically ill is let, let the intern say, well, it's just a stress response, or, oh, his pulse of 124 is, agi- is anxiety when in fact we think he's sick. But the the question is, is what's the cause of the elevated white count? And the most common is um, infection. But in his case, and this is sort of the trick of this question, is he actually has something, uh, an unusual but important to recognize syndrome called neuroleptic malignant syndrome. So you can get an elevated white count uh, as well with that. And neuroleptic malignant syndrome is very similar to malignant hyperthermia of anesthesia. And essentially you get, it's like, Excess dopamine and serotonin is going crazy. And essentially the cause for him is the Haldol decanoid. Haldol is an old antipsychotic. It's very powerful. It's a very powerful dopamine blocker. And basically his, um, this is a systemic response. So you get the specific muscle rigidity. You get a fever. You get an elevated white count. You get elevated CPK or CK. And that's the most sensitive test in this case is following the muscle breakdown. And, in fact, as maybe you know, muscle breakdown, if you have enough, can cause kidney failure, um, essentially, because it, the, the, when the red blood cells break down, you basically have all that tissue in the blood system, and they can clog up your glomeruline, your kidney, and cause kidney failure. So you have all this extra um, materials. Rhabdomyolysis is a technical term. So in that, people can get kidney failure in this as, as well. So. Um, but the, the, the reason I bring this case up is here's a guy that, you know, I mean, it's pretty clear as I'm telling you the case that this guy is physically ill, right? I mean, but, you know, at first you, can, you might not look for medical illness in someone with schizophrenia because you can say, well, his behavior problems are clearly from schizophrenia. Um, and sometimes people with schizophrenia will get medical illness that's not quite this obvious but the board and care operator who may know the person well or their psychiatrist who knows them well will say, that there's something different about this. I don't think this is schizophrenia. I think this is a medical illness. So it's just an example of people with schizophrenia and chronic psychiatric illness. You still have to have uh, some suspicion for medical illness. Otherwise, you, you might miss it. So, um, so I'm going to wrap things up. Thank you so much for your attention. Excellent questions. <laughs>